welcome back to the Going Coastal podcast, the podcast of the Students and New Professionals chapter of the American Shore and Beach Preservation Association and hosted by our American Shoreline Podcast Network. I am one of your co-hosts, Marissa Torres. And I'm also one of your co-hosts, Heather Wade. And on this episode, we have a PhD candidate with us, Matthew Jansen, that will kick off the first installment of Going Coastal's Student Research Spotlight series. So thank you so much, Matt, for being here. And now you're actually one of John Miller's students at Stevens, is that correct? Yeah, thanks. Thanks so much for having me. Um, I am one of John's uh, students, and I am a graduate research student at uh, the Coastal Engineering Research Group at uh, Davidson Laboratory. Awesome. Cool. So what is it? um, So your current research position is a graduate research assistant. Uh, So what is your kind of role within that dynamic? And uh, what do you what feel? What kind of work are you studying? So uh, my my focus is really on the coastal hazards, coastal processes, that sort of um, nexus. And um, as part of that group, we do we do a lot of interdisciplinary work, everything from living shorelines to risk assessments and field work. So uh, the nice thing about being in a very small group is that you get to wear many hats. So I've, I've been fortunate enough to work on instrumentation and deployment, as well as everything from inlet modeling to um, beach nourishment, living shorelines. It's a it's a it's a pretty it's a pretty dynamic place to work. That sounds like a lot of fun. So how many people are actually in your group? Um, the group is probably around ten. Usually, there's a uh, three staff. Per- positions um, full-time, and then we've got um, usually between five and six students, depending on uh, depending on the year, and with a, a mix of both gradu- uh, both PhD candidates and uh, and master's students. So typically, we have roughly three and three or thereabouts. And are they like all within like coastal engineering specific, or do they have um, other disciplines that are related like policy or management or maybe environmental in that group? Oh, and on our group, uh, it's exclusively coastal engineering. Um, in, inside the, the larger lab, there are um, other research groups, labs that have a slightly different focus that might be more on the modeling side. We're probably more of the traditional coastal processes side, so we mix a little bit of the uh, instrumentation with um, with the engineering side and the more more applied. Um, but there are, there's a, a whole host of uh, other options out there if you want to go more the environmental side or, or um, not too sure about the policy side, but I would imagine that we could probably car- carve something out there. Sure, that makes sense. Um, so did you, were you strictly coastal engineering from your bachelor's to master's and, and into your PhD? Yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm an anomaly. I think, I think if you Google search, I think it's like 80% of college students switch their major at least once. And um, I started off at University of Rhode Island with ocean engineering as an undergrad, and you know I'm now on my third degree, so I've I've never never even contemplated changing. Interesting. Well, I am also a URI ocean engineering graduate. <laughs> Small world. It's a, it's a wonderful program there. It is. There's a there's a lot of roadie rams running. That's around. for sure. So, I kind of just bump into them great... everywhere in in the professional field. It's fun. Yeah. Yeah, we're not quite as prolific as the Florida Gators, oh, but we're—I uh, think we're—we're we're, we're getting close. Yeah. Uh, so you just got your bachelor's there. That was your first degree. How did you like Rhode Island? Oh, I loved it. I—you know—I think I graduated and I tried to spend the next four years trying to stay there, but uh, unfortunately, it didn't—didn't didn't work out. And um, 
you know, I, I, I spent a lot of time in a lot of different states. Um, I loved, but I loved Rhode Island, loved, loved the program. They had some unbelievable professors there that I still keep in touch with. And, um, when you, when you do the, the conference circuit, you know, it's always, it's always nice to bump into somebody like Baxter and whatnot. And, um, you know, just, it's, they're, they're, it's a wonderful program. Can't speak highly enough of it. Yeah. I have to agree with you there, mainly because they sponsored my bachelor's and my master's. There you go. Um, so I heard that you took a rather circuitous, circuitous, circuitous route uh, through in between bachelor's, master's and PhD land. So like um, what what kind of work did you do in between all of these things to get you to where you are now? Yeah, so I, I definitely did. Uh, I came in. I, I came into undergrad, and um, I was very fortunate enough. You know, I had been a sort of a schizophrenic high school student. You know, I was. Um, I had a lot of fun. I would cut class and go trout fishing, and and all those kind of th- fun things. So when I went to school, it was kind of like uh, when you started paying for school, it kind of put like it in a whole new perspective. So my attention to detail uh, became a lot. I was a lot more attentive, and I was very fortunate enough to have a scholarship that. Um, I needed to keep a GP, a grade point average to keep. And uh, so I was much more focused, came in, sort of hit the ground running. Uh, it was kind of a 180 from my high school days. And uh, by the end of my undergrad, I was ready to get out. Like I, you know, I would have never thought in a million years that I would have been going down the PhD route or even grad school. Um, I remember sitting after, you know, if I was, as, a, as, a, as a RAM, I'm sure you could, you know, the senior design, I had Grilly as a, as a senior design uh, and I remember that being just, I, I, I didn't know if I was going to graduate. It was, it was some of the hardest things I've ever gone through and, and, um, you know, really challenging. They push you hard there, which is great. So, you know, a lot, a lot of personal growth, but as soon as I was done, I was ready. I was ready for a paycheck and, uh, actually ended up going, working for a contractor. So I, I did design build ground improvement. Um, you know, really liked Chris Baxter's, uh, classes, loved the deep foundations, loved a lot of the earth support. Um, went that route, was working on a, on a, a CPT rig in Kentucky for seven months, um, you know, and then decided after doing the, uh, the contractor and rolling around in the mud for a, a long enough time that I kind of missed the ocean aspect of it. Went, so I transitioned, went to a consulting firm, um, worked at a consulting firm for a number of years. And um, I, I kind of, uh, I actually got passed over for a job that uh, required a master's. So I decided, you know what, there's Stevens, the right down in Hoboken, you know, John Miller was there. Um, you know, you look up, look up his, his resume, who he's worked with. It was like, this is a great opportunity. It's right there. Took a, took a grad class part-time. And uh, after finishing the first class, he, he kind of called me up over the summer and said, Hey, crazy idea. Would you want to come back full time? And uh, so I landed in, I landed in, uh, in a master's program and uh, we were doing some work with the, with the state and, risk assessments associated with some of these breach nourishment projects and um, you know, a lot of, a lot of reports to push out. It was a lot of fun, um, big, big effort. Um, and at the end of it, we're kind of writing the thesis. Um, it was, it was, uh, it was, it was sort of uh, it was sort of a miserable experience, but at the end of it, like I kind of looked back on it and I was like, that was kind of fun, really enjoyed it. And um, you know, went back into consulting for another year and decided like after a year, it was like, what am I doing? I, you know, I, I, I miss that. I love the technical aspect of consulting, but, you know, chasing people down and trying to get paid and all of these sort of the, the dirty work of that, like, you know, I, I it's like, what, how can I get back and just do the technical and, and research seemed like the perfect way. So applied and here I am three and a half years later. 
Yeah, that's that's really interesting, uh, Matt. And I, I actually can relate um, to taking a break and, and going into uh, practicing uh, in your in my profession. And I was just curious, um, relating to that break and then going back to school, have you found that uh, having that experience actually working as a practitioner has helped you in graduate school? Oh yeah, absolutely. I would, I would strongly encourage anyone who's even thinking about doing a master's to go work for a couple of years. Um, you know, I think, I think there's, uh, um, you gain so much more perspective. Um, I think you also learn what you don't want to do in your first couple of years of working. So, you know, there might be, you might come out, you might like, for me, I thought I wanted to go work. And as a contractor, I was chasing the dollar signs. Like that was where the money was at. And, and, you know, after two years, it was like, you know, there was a lot of technical challenging aspects about the job, you know, loved it, but, um, it was, it was, it really sort of focused you back on of, of learning, not necessarily what you wanted to do, but what you didn't want to do. And, you know, from, so that from a personal standpoint, I think that's a, that's a, that's a huge, huge advantage to actually, you know, go out there and try and, because once you, once you commit to a, a master's PhD, you're sort of, you know, that's a year, two years of your life, three years, if you're doing the PhD, another three years on top of that or so, you know, you're, you're really, you're really focusing. And, um, you know, I think it's, 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 that's a big investment of your, of your, of your professional life that you need to make sure that you're doing the right, the right thing. Um, and then, you know, on, on, a, uh, from an academic standpoint, I think it gives you such a better perspective of like what questions you want to ask and where there's a need in industry and, and, uh, you know, shortcomings that you might want to, you might want to ask. So I think, uh, just that whole, the whole judgment side of it, um, leaves you with a, a lot better of a, of a, uh, a perspective, I would say. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I, I would say that I totally agree with that. Um, well, so we, we did want to ask, uh, could you tell us a little bit about where you're from? No, I, I'm a mutt. Um, I'm born in Toronto, came across to the States, lived in, you know, grew up in uh, Vermont, and then really, I consider home New Jersey. Um, so yeah, I, I, I've bounced around quite a bit. Since you have bounced around, um, what would you say you've liked most about you know the different areas and and like what do you like most about new jersey what do you like least oh well the food's probably the best thing um we've we've got we've got some really great food around here but uh, you know like to me like jersey's great um it gets a lot of bad rap especially when i was in rhode island you know there's a lot of the uh the negative connotations i think when i was when i was first going to undergrad and dating myself you know the jersey shore was first coming out and that was all the rage and uh so everyone associates, at least when I was at Rhode Island, associated, you know, New Jersey with the Jersey Shore. There's to me so much more to the state. Like, you know, I, I grew up in the western part of the state in, in farmland. And, you know, in an hour you could be in, in New York City going across one of the bridge and tunnels. Um, you know, where I live now, I, you know, I'm on, on, on the Raritan Bay, uh, not too far away from it. Like I can walk the dogs there in the morning, you know, in the, in the winter you can shoot out to Poconos or up to... Uh, up into New York. So there's just, there's just a ton around here and the history is just remarkable. You know, you can go into, into, into New York. There's some really old, old, really interesting parts, you know, going down to wall street, walking, walking, the, walking the roads there. There's just, there's so much to offer in such a small area. And after visiting some friends in LA, you know, I thought traffic here was terrible, but it's actually not so bad. Not comparatively. No, I hear that. <laughs> <laughs> 
feel that. Um, so you're over on the Jersey coast and you mentioned you do a lot of like field work. Do you normally do all of your field work locally, uh, along New Jersey? Have you like traveled to other, um, coastlines nearby to do some of this, some of this field work and kind of investigate these living shorelines? Yeah. So, um, I would definitely say there's, there's, uh, there's a huge aspect of, uh, New Jersey focus. So we, we do a lot of monitoring on the beaches. We've got a couple inlets that we've, we've took, taken a look at and modeled for sediment transport. Um, John obviously has a, a huge portion of the living shorelines part in the Delaware Bay. Uh, myself personally, I'm, I'm not so much involved on in the living shorelines aspect. I'm more of a, a coastal process and, uh, coastal hazards guy. So I've been really fortunate enough to, um, sort of, invite myself along and make myself available to a lot of, a lot of post-storm uh, uh, damage collection. So, you know, through the different, through different uh, conferences, you sort of meet, um, you can meet enough people, you can network that I was fortunate enough to go down to Mexico beach after, after hurricane Michael and, 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 um, and do a lot of the, the damage assessments of, of residential structures and, and, and inventory. Um, so, you know, there's been, there's been a lot of those kind of opportunities and, uh, you know, just sort of hearkening back to that that conversation when I was when I was working in consulting, we did a lot of inspection work of of marine and waterfront structures. So having that having that expertise or or having that experience, I guess is the better way to put it, um, definitely makes you a little more of an asset to some of those teams. So like if you can leverage some of those uh, some of those experiences that you get in, in industry and private practice, that as you come back across, um, you can definitely make yourself. Uh, a, a more valuable, um, you know, if you come across with a, if you come across with a professional engineering license already, like, you know, there's a, there's a, uh, an implicit understanding that you, you have some innate ability that they can sort of let you wander on your own and, and they don't have to do as much handholding. So for, 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 for data collection that requires, you know, very short turnaround from event to, you know, there's a, it's a diminishing asset. Um, you know, if you can, if you can jump in and contribute meaningfully, that's uh, the, the opportunities are there. For sure. Um, I'm sure like the data um, that you collect is probably, it's very valuable. Like in the coastal field, we always, we feel like we have like a data store, store um, shortage, uh, even though we have, we have so much data, but it's not on every inch of the coastline. So um, with your, all the data that you, um, collect in New Jersey, do you find yourself, do you find Stevens and maybe you and John's group, um, partnering with other academic institutions, other federal institutions, um, and, um, maybe, maybe other in industry, uh, institutions to kind of share that data, to work with it uh, in different ways. Maybe that helps benefit some research sharing or other, other things. Yeah. So, uh, I think just to go back to like that, first thought was um, I'm reminded of an experience at Rhode Island where um, I was in Professor Tice's class and I was giving some sort of presentation and uh, I made the mistake of stating that, you know, the data set that we had was relatively small and it was undersampled and he stopped me right there mid-sentence. And he goes, you're working, you're, you're, you're going to be graduating and working in the ocean environment. He goes, you're always, always, always going to be undersampled and underrepresented. That's not, you know, that's not an excuse and basically shut me down right there. So, you know, I think, you know, to your point, like we have such a, a, a plethora of data and data is becoming, you know, um, as the models become even more higher resolution, like the, the amount of data that we're getting is just, you know, gigabytes and gigabytes and terabytes. Um, 
And historically, so from a historical perspective, we have so much more a rich data set, but from a you know spatial and temporal standpoint, we're still, you know, you're still in this this balancing act of trying to trying to um, uh, trying to draw conclusions from from a data set that you that you wish you still had more of. So, um, I for on, so I think it's just like it's it's such an interesting spot to be because it's sort of this confluence of both like rich data sets and, and undersampled all in the same all in the same sentence so to speak um, but for us we, we do tend to partner um, to some extent wherever we can so that we, we do some data collection for for, for private uh, enterprises um, um, we you know we'll share data with with industry when that becomes but for the most part uh, you know most of our most of our partnerships are really with at the state level so we're partnering with with uh, DEP the coastal engineering group uh, to some extent, some of the other local universities, um, there are some synergies there. Um, you know, it's particularly when we start talking about either the, the living shorelines, like we're, we're, we're pretty much through and through engineers. Um, so when you start talking about some of the living shorelines from the biology side, you know, as a partner for Delaware estuaries, you know, on the policy side, there's some of the other universities around here that, that do more on the policy work. Um, you know, where you try and take some of the applied engineering skills and then, you know, how does that shape policy moving forward? So there's, there's definitely opportunities there. Um, you know, there's, uh, yeah, there's definitely a lot of opportunities on that front. All right. Well, so why don't you tell us a little bit about your uh, PhD research? Um, so what is your research about? So my personal research is, is uh, really on, on coastal hazards. So it's really about quantifying um the, the risk essentially to to, co to coastal defense structures. So I look at uh, trying to quantify hazards and trying to quantify the vulnerability of, of uh, either buildings themselves or coastal defense structures, so dunes, beach nourishments, um, projects like that, and trying to come up with uh, tools that can be useful on the on the either design or evaluation of those from looking at it from a, a risk perspective. I was just curious, you know how you uh, communicate about your research to people um, when they ask why you do it, you know, why is it important and why should they care? Yeah. So the, the research is, is, is from an applied standpoint and why, why would you end up caring about it? Um, you know, at the end of the day, everyone cares about a, uh, when you think of like a storm, right? So if you think about a hurricane, um, you usually jump to two things, right? You either think of the outcomes, you think of like, monetary damages you think of people people with lost housing you know power outages you know hurricane sandy hit when i was a when i was a consulting engineer and that that sort of woke everyone up uh locally right and from a historical perspective you know you had that storm in, in, in 2012 and you've had a couple nor'easters in there as well um but you know from a historical standpoint um you know the last big storms that hit were in 91 92 thereabouts and so you have this attenuation of of the memory of those damages of people who live by the shore, move away, new families come in, you know, and they think it'll never happen to them. They think of Florida, you think of North the Carolinas, you think of them as being much more at risk. Um, and then you kind of get hit with one of these storms and all of a sudden, you know, now you start caring about your beaches again. Um, so, you know, like there's to me, like the, the ocean is such a, such a, such an important part of New Jersey. Um, you've got, it's like such a tourism driver, there's a, there's a ton of people that live within you know three miles of the beach. Um, it's sort of uh, 
you know, there's, there's, there's a lot here that's, that's tied to Jersey and the, the shoreline. Just a quick follow up to that. Do you, or do you or your lab, uh, your, your team at the lab, uh, do you guys do any kind of outreach or engagement uh, with coastal communities or, or other um, industry professionals about the research that you're doing and, and what you're finding? Yeah, inside the group, there's, um, especially through Sea Grant, um, personally, I, I haven't had much involvement with that, but um, they've, they, they've had uh, a lot of outreach to either high school students, um, middle school students, sort of uh, trying to get them aware of, of uh, certain things that occur on the, on the ocean. Um, they, I think these ocean fun days where they try and get people excited about the beach and sort of the processes and, and give them sort of a, a, a crash course on you know, coastal processes and erosion and storms and water levels and what does that all mean moving forward? Um, you know, so there's been some work, I think, with some of the other, you know, high school students, the high school students as well. Um, there's a couple of charter schools in New Jersey that um, I think MAST is one of them and there's a few other. Um, personally, myself, I, I don't do too much with it, but there's definitely some outreach. And I think that all goes through Sea Grant. Um, so I just have a quick follow up with Sandy specifically. So you mentioned that you were um, Sandy hit while you were still in consulting and not back in the academic world. And so I'm wondering if you notice a shift um, within consulting, maybe within academia from before Sandy versus after Sandy, um, you know, people's perspective, their attitude towards coastal resilience, maybe more coastal related things. Um, um, yeah. Yeah, there's uh, there's definitely a huge shift. I think I would say it was a cataclysmic shift. Um, you know, from a from a consulting perspective, um, we would we would do like the 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 intent of the design, right? So like you work in a, in a uh, you work in a coastal shop or you work in a, on waterfront projects, and there's really no universal design code. Um, you know, you have ASC seven, you have twenty four, and and you know you have some of the the, the, the um, FEMA guidance, you have some of the facilities like well, it used to be NAFAC. Um, but, you know, there was there was uh, there was no universal code. So you kind of there was a lot of judgment that came that came with it. And I think one of the things after Sandy was from uh, from an ownership perspective and from a regulation standpoint you know, in the cities, especially, um, you know, there became a much more heightened awareness of what are we doing? Why are we having so much damage? What can we do better? So for, for consulting, like after, you know, for the projects that were already through designed and going through, per, like through all the permitting process and being built, you know, a lot of things ground to a halt and people sort of did a double check and said, you know, what are we doing here? Like, you know, for Sandy, one of the big things was load path interruption. So, you know, are we make, are we, are we really accounting for the buoyancy loads in the right way? You know, and there's this, this whole cataclysmic shift that sort of happened inside the industry where where it came down from the top down, you know, before it was like you were left to your own devices, so to speak. And, uh, you know, so there's a lot more heightened awareness from, from the owners, from, um, from that aspect. And then even in the state, I mean, we had, we had a, a federal beach project that was, that was authorized, um, came out of the nineties when we had the last, last round of really damaging storms, but, you know, they couldn't get, because New Jersey is an old state and we have a lot of uh, property rights along the shoreline. Um, they couldn't get, they couldn't get the army, the, Army Corps wouldn't do the project without the easements, and we had problems getting the easement. And all of a sudden, when people got you know wiped out, um, there was a lot more there was a lot more um, uh, groundswell of a movement. You know, a lot of lot, a lot more people signed the easements to allow it. And the people that you know held out 
or um, refused to, you know, the, the governor at that point, um, you know, decided that, you know, it was, it was important enough that, you know, we needed to federalize the, the, we needed a universal uh, protection system scheme along the entire coast and, and, you know, was going to use eminent domain, whatever powers in his, in his policy to, uh, to be able to enact that. And, but, you know, you needed that groundswell movement. You can't fight, you can't fight a million little battles. Like, you know, it, it, the number became low enough where there was only a few, few properties that you really had to work with the owners and, and, and try and convince them that like there was a net benefit to them. Um, so I think there was like a huge, huge, huge shift locally. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by LJA Engineering. With 28 offices along the Gulf Coast, the folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numerical modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. Be sure to check out their brand new Coastal Resilience Department, headed up by ASPN's own Peter Ravella. Find them at LJA.com. Be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today Daily Blast newsletter at CoastalNewsToday.com for daily updates on the events and news that shape the coastal discussion. Want to support the discussion and promote your company? We have sponsorship packages available now. Email me to learn more at Chloe at CoastalNewsToday.com. That's C-H-L-O-E at CoastalNewsToday.com. Hope to hear from you and enjoy the show. Do you find, like, now that you're in academia, do you find that that attitude has reverted at all in some way because New, Ber- New Jersey hasn't had um, a hurricane in, in pretty much since Sandy? Um, nothing serious. Yeah, there's definitely um, a complacency factor that, that definitely occurs. I would say, you know, a lot of people are still here. You know, the Sandys um, will be 10 years next year, right? And uh, I, th- I think enough people have had been damaged by it. You know, there's, a, there's enough heightened awareness that, um, you know, in a, New Jersey's in a, in a, a unique position, right? Because not only do you have the tropical storms that hit, but you also have these nor'easters. And so while the cataclysmic damage that you would see that you saw from Sandy, um, you know, parts of the state in, in southern New Jersey got hit by a nor'easter a couple of weeks after Sandy. And, and there was more damage from that nor'easter, you know, in the southern part of the state than there was from Sandy. So higher water levels, more erosion, all these other kind of impacts. So we get, we get, uh, Sandy is definitely enough of a, a groundswell movement to to impact everyone in the state because no one escaped without knowing somebody um, who was directly impacted, right? So you know, and now with these enough of these sort of nor'easters, I think it's it's kept kept it in the in the, the mind. But um, you know, there's definitely anytime you go a long period of time without major major impacts, there there there, there tends to be a, an attenuation of that of that. That care. Yes, the availability heuristic. If uh, people haven't experienced it recently, they forget that it ever happened and are now biased kind of against it. Yeah, the recency bias, right? So there's that, you definitely see it. It's all part of risk assessment. It's definitely not as, I would say it's not as prevalent, or maybe I'm, I'm more attuned to it. Um, or maybe the circles that I run into or run with are, are typically uh, tend to be people who are much more informed. Um, you know, so I could, I could, I could have a, I could have a blind spot for that for sure. That's fair. Um, that's good self-awareness. That's for sure. <laughs> um, so with your research in this risk, um, coastal hazard risks, looking at, um, these coastal defense structures, other infrastructure along the coastline, what do you like or love most about doing what you do and what do you like the least? 
Oh, that's a tough question. Um, I, you know, to me, I, I love the aspect of it that, that it's 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 open ended. Like you don't arrive at a, a a predetermined decision at anything. You know, so you sort of follow you follow the data and you, and uh, wherever that takes you, that's you can draw your own conclusion. So that, to me, the you know, you're doing you're doing something different. You you have this sort of blank canvas that you can work with, and 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 uh, you know you you you're al- you're you're allowed to sort of experiment inside of that. Um, so to me, I I love that aspect of it. There's there's always a new challenge. There's always a new skill to be learning. You're never doing the same thing twice. Um, you know, tons of opportunities come up. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't, I don't think I. There's nothing personally that I really dislike about it, to be honest with you. Um, you know, from, you know, maybe I, maybe I've still got like the, uh, I'm still on the honeymoon phase coming across from from consulting. Um, but you know, from when I was when I was a consultant, like I, you know, I loved I loved the technical aspects of the work. Um, you know, I'm sure that if I if I ever reach John's position or something along those lines where I'm writing grants, I'm sure that'll probably be be up there with it. But um, from from where I am, I'm 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 far enough removed and you know grateful for it that the uh, you know that the administrative side of it I don't I don't have to deal with it's um, it's just about the work and and trying to get the best quality data and trying to do something interesting with it so um, I'm sure you know ask me ask me in a couple of years and maybe I'll have a different, I'll have a more expansive answer on that on the dislike part. Okay, yeah, we'll definitely have to make a plan to have you back in a couple of years and we'll ask <laughs> you about that because um, uh, I'm very impressed by your positive answer relating to what you like least because uh, <laughs> I know that- We're definitely going to circle Ooh. back on that one. <laughs> for sure, for sure. Um, but like with that, real quick, how many, how many years are you into your PhD again? I am I'm wrapping up my fourth. So this okay. is- Okay, and this how is- many more do you expect? I, if you had asked me, I would have hoped that I would have been out in May. So I'm, I'm, I'm behind the eight ball on that one. I'm, I'm hoping that I'm out by, I'm hoping that I'm out by December. That's, that's the, that's the, that's the plan. Um, there's a plan in place. Things, things have, things are in motion. Um, but you know, there's, uh, you know, I, I'm very hesitant to, to, to count my, my chickens before they hatch, so to speak. Yeah, life happens. Yes, yes, yeah, yes. Yeah. Um, so what does a typical day look like for you as a PhD student? Um, now I'm I'm basically in the heart of the dissertation. So my, my days are pretty boring. It starts with coffee every day and usually taking the dogs for a walk. Um, usually kind of have some some thought along there as I'm walking. You know, I'm I'm lucky. You know, I walk walk down it's a couple blocks, I can get to the bay. There's a you know, it's a it's uh it's the Raritan Bay, so if there's low tide after a rain, I'm not even letting the dogs swim in the water. But um, you know, it's a beach nonetheless, and it's a great place to sort of percolate some thoughts on, on uh, you know, the direction that you want to go for that day and what you're trying to what you're trying to execute. And then you know, you come back and it's jump on the machine, and you know, you're you're playing around in in in, in MATLAB and and writing. Um, you know, on a on a more typical day when before COVID and before sort of being in the um, the writing phase, so to speak, um, it was a lot more exciting. You know, I would, I, I'm down, I'm down south, uh, a little bit out of the, out of the city. Um, so I'd hop on a train, going, go into the, go into the lab. You know, the lab was always something going on. There's a tow tank below it. Um, so there's, there's some naval architects. There's tons of interdisciplinary groups there. Um, you know, work with the work with the group, and we would, you know, uh, for for 
you know, we had our hands in a whole bunch of different projects. So, you know, depending on what crisis of the week was, was coming up or when the next deadline was, that was, you know, it could be inlet modeling, it could be, you know, uh, instrumentation, it could be going out and collecting data. Um, we could be, you know, we're fortunate enough that we have a couple of research vessels. So, um, pretty active boater and we've got a, a boat captain. So if he needed help moving a boat to South Jersey, you know, I'd be hopping on a boat and going out of New York City at three in the morning to catch the catch a fair tide and you'd go all the way down to, you know, Manaswan Inlet or something like that or or um Barnegat Inlet and move a boat. So I mean there was there was a there's a lot more interesting aspects of it uh, a couple of years ago. Lately it's been pretty dry. I think they both sound fantastic to be honest. What tools or resources do you use most often as a PhD student and that you would recommend to other students? So uh, the two, I mean, whatever programming language you want to work, whether it's MATLAB or Python, um, you know, to me, I, I, I work with MATLAB because it's what I learned at URI. And, and um, I try to learn one thing once and try and just... Uh, uh, it takes me long enough to master or, or, or become proficient, I guess, in anything. So, um, you know, trying to relearn different syntaxes is, is never, uh, never an easy one. So I stayed, I stayed with MATLAB. Um, but I think probably one of the, the best ones that I've, I've learned is I was really fortunate enough when I started at, at Stevens. Um, there was a PhD student who was, or candidate at the time, um, and she was, you know, known for having huge databases and, and resources. So Liz got me turned on to uh, EndNote, and for me, EndNote has been such an invaluable. You know, there's I'm sure there's there's other options, Mendeley and something something else, um, but for me, EndNote on the writing process and keeping track of of um, you know resources and, and and papers and what you've read and having a place to keep everything located in one area. I, you know, at one point I was working on an external hard drive and trying to save things, and I had an Excel spreadsheet, and that was uh, that got out of hand real quick. So. Um, for me, EndNote is, is EndNote and MATLAB are the two go-tos. Yeah, that's great advice. Um, EndNote saved me in school, <laughs> so I totally agree. Marissa, do you use MATLAB uh, in your uh, job? Just real quick, curious. Yeah, yeah. So I, I did learn MATLAB through URI, and I did get to use that again, you know, through my master's and even in my current job. Um for most of the coastal research that I do, but I have become, had that the opportunity to learn the R programming language and Python for other projects as well. So I've been fortunate enough to be forced into learning those two things, uh, but it's been, it's been a pretty good tool for sure. How long was the uptake on that? Just out of curiosity. So like, you know. You mean like how long did it take me to learn or be proficient in the other two? Yeah, you know, so where you had a day that was, um, you know, productive, I guess is the way to put it. That's fair. Um, I do still Google at least one thing per day, um, probably more than that, depending, like in both languages, even in MATLAB sometimes I'll forget, like I get confused with the syntax. Like once you know multiple languages and they're all kind of similar with the syntax, it's like, oh, how does this language handle things versus the other language and what's the syntax for that? Um but I would say it took me about a year to be uh, proficient in R. Um, I still Google a lot of things, but now it's almost second nature. 
And I picked up Python last year, and it's still challenging to me because it's so similar to MATLAB in some ways that I always get confused in how Python handles things that mat- that is easy in MATLAB, but is more challenging in Python, I have to say. So if you, if you learn MATLAB first and then you switch to Python, it might take you a little bit longer. Um, it's taken me, it's taken me a little bit longer than I imagined, but it's, it's a good learning experience to have those tools in your back pocket for sure. I'm, I'm super impressed because, you know, I think even on a day on a language that I've been dealing with for, uh, for 10 years, I think I have, I have three, on my, my machine when I'm, when I'm coding, I have three screens. One of them is going to be dedicated to Google and whatever, you know, MATLAB form that I'm going to be on and trying to find somebody who's done something similar and syntax and all that other. And then another one is usually the command window and then your, your live script and the other one. So I'm, I'm, I'm impressed that you're down to one. That's, uh, I, I strive to be at one. I think I'm at, you know, at a, a, an order of magnitude larger than that or two. <laughs> Well, you know, you know, jack of all trades, master of none. It's like I'm I'm adequate at all three, I would say. I can get by, but like switching in between the two in a single day, that's that's challenging. Hey, the, the, the last line of that uh, saying is, you know, jack of all trades, a master of none, but is better than a master of one, right? So, you know, there's something to be said by being able to jump across and be bilingual. So um, I, I'm actually- Thank you so much for making me feel better about yeah, myself. There you go. See, I heard that one too. I've used that line before. So I was like, I got to save that for later. Um, but I'm actually curious. So for you, like when you came across from MATLAB to going to Python, do you, is there, is there a benefit? Like, do you, cause I've, I've heard some people, you know, some of my close colleagues have tried to get me onto the Python and they said, you know, it's so much easier, so much better. And they've given all these lists of reasons. I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm trying to graduate. You know, like I, at one point somebody got me onto like the LaTeX thing and I was trying to do LaTeX and I was like, you know what? I had to like punt. It was like, I just, I'm going to use word. I got to get out. You know, I just need to get the words on a piece of paper. <laughs> so I'm curious, like, if, from your perspective, if there is like, an, if, if you would, if you were starting all over again, would you just go right to Python? Mm, interesting question. Um, first, two things. One, don't hate on LaTeX or LaTeX or however you say it. I've heard it said so many different ways, but I call it LaTeX, and it does save lives when it comes to your dissertation if you've been working with it for a while. Just saying. Then second, um, you know, I'm really not sure. I feel like it would have been better to learn Python first because there are more fundamental aspects of coding itself, like mm, programming with um, talking to a computer. There are different variable types that are very sensitive in Python um, but they, once you know how to work with them, they're so powerful. Python can be a very powerful tool if you understand the fundamentals to use it properly. And that's what I'm. That's why it's so difficult to go from MATLAB, which kind of takes care of a lot of things in the back end. You can just kind of do stuff magically, and in Python, it's such. It's, it's a multi-step process, and I feel like MATLAB kind of ruined like my brain in that aspect, making, oh, this, this should be easy. Why is this so difficult? And it's because MATLAB simplified a lot of things when Python, such a powerful tool, is just a little bit more complex because of its fundamentals. So I think I would have preferred to learn Python first, but I do love the simplicity of MATLAB and plotting in MATLAB, I got to say. 
uh, still worth learning, I feel like, because Python is open source and you'll meet a lot of people probably in the field who still rely on MATLAB if the organization can support licenses, but you'll also meet a lot of people in the field who would use Python because it's open source um, and we can't, like, not everybody can afford the licenses. Yeah, especially when it's uh, it renews every year, right? So yes. It's, uh, it's uh, Thank goodness. Stream. <laughs> Thank goodness I have an organization that supports that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so what is your, so in your PhD, what is, what do you see as your work-life balance as a student in your perspective? And how does that compare to your previous jobs in consulting or even um, in that contractor role? Oh, I mean, so work-life balance is, is miles better as a student. Um, you know, there's obviously nights that are long and there's deadlines and um, there are some miserable moments. You know, I remember being on a vacation that I had planned for, you know, months and end up having to do, uh, you know, had to do paper revisions that came in at last minute and there's a deadline, short turnaround. And then, you know, a few other things came up and a few fires. And, you know, so like there's, they're not, you know, it's not, um, you know, it's not perfect, but it, when you compare it to consulting and, and everything else that I've, I've, I've done, I, the work-life balance is, is so much better. Um, you know, I think one of the reasons why is you have more time to really percolate ideas, which to me is, is part of the fun, you know, so as long as you manage, as long as you're active and managing your own deadlines, you know, like, you know, you know what you have to do in a given year, like, you know, you have to write two papers, you know, you have to get, you know, uh, the, the proposal done, you know, you have to get these two reports out or whatever it is. Like, so as long as you're, as long as you can manage those deadlines and you can, work towards that i think you know um at least in our group like you know it's hands off um you know you you basically manage your own time and and uh and so to me i, I love it the work-life balance is great um you know where, where else can you go for a walk in the morning and uh you know walk along the beach and, and say that you're actually working you know it's like you're you're there collecting data there's 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 aspects of it you know there's been times where like i have i have equipment in my car or whatever it is you're walking the dog and like, you start to see sand waves and you're like ah oh, i gotta go out and get this like this this will be interesting i don't know when i'm gonna use it but this is interesting i need i need this data set so i you know i, I think there's that aspect of it is just there's a lot more create there's a lot more room for creativity um, which i really love and you didn't really get that in consulting or contract or or contracting yeah um, it's just different. I mean, it's, 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 it's a product based, right? So, you know, at the end of the day, you've got to deliver a deliverable and the idea is to try and do it for the, the cheapest possible cost. So, um, you know, there are aspects of consulting that I really like. Um, you know, I was, I was one of the only sort of ocean engineers, coastal engineers working in a, in a truly structural shop. And so like, you know, I remember conversations that would come around and, you know, you'd have to develop some wave loads and you would, you develop some wave loads and you give it to somebody as a structural engineer and they'd go off and they try and design the piles and they'd come back and they'd say, ah, this load, what are you talking about? This is crazy. Like, you know, this is like, you know, you know, five times, whatever the, uh, the wind loading is like, you know, 10 times the wind loading. It's like, you start talking to them and like, you, you're just like, you, cause not everyone, uh, you know, there's a lot of civil engineers that come out. A lot of people start working in the, in the, in the marine industry um, you know, but they may not have the same background on understanding, you know, particle velocities. And, you know, when you start, when you start to have those conversations and you start to explain to somebody, well, okay, what's the difference between, you know, um, you know, wind loading and wave loading. Okay. You've got the two different components. You can break it down and you've got the pressure drag, you've got friction drag. 
you know, what's 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 the difference between the row of air and row of density, uh, the row of, uh, of water? Like a light bulb goes off, and it's like, okay, maybe this isn't so so unreasonable after all. So, you know, there was definitely an aspect of, you know, I think that was sort of the seed for me was explaining, and we'd have these like conversations, and we start you try. I remember I remember back to like you know Grilly's. Uh, um, the toral process and you start going through like linear wave theory and like, you know, how the waves change and, and trying to explain that to somebody, you know, who might've been, you know, a, a brand new hire, you know, fresh out of school, but never really learned new, like hung out at the beach, loved the water, maybe a great surfer, but you know, you know, the, the math behind it wasn't, wasn't there. So I think that, that kind of set the seed for me of being able to sort of convey those kind of conversations, um, you know, was part of what sort of led me down that whole research aspect. You sound like a natural, that's for sure. <laughs> sound like a very good communicator who can like break down the fundamentals, and that's we need more people like that. You know, kind of breaking the barriers of of science and and the lay person, I suppose, or just just the community in general. One hundred percent agree. <laughs> You're very kind. I, I don't. I don't know. Make it till you make it, I suppose. That's all you can do. Power <laughs> pose every day. Hey, don't let the imposter syndrome get you. Oh, it's a uh, PhD comics has gotten me through a lot, a lot of these days. <laughs> well, and actually there is, um, maybe you've seen it. There's a research, a, a, an article that came out that was recently published on the, I guess, um, effectiveness of memes for reducing depression in graduate students. Oh wow! No, I haven't seen or some. Yeah, I, something like that. I, I feel like I, I feel like I need to read this. This might uh, this might go to the top of the pile for my reading tomorrow morning. Yeah, well, if I find it, I will definitely send it to you. Memes have helped it up a whole new field of research. All right, so. Um, let, tell us if you have any plans to attend or present at any conferences this year. So in theory, I will be presenting at uh, ASBPA in New Orleans coming up here. So I think that's all contingent Woo! on the, uh, what's going on in the world on that given week. But um, right. hopefully, with, with any luck, uh, you know, things improve, hopefully, um, I will be in New Orleans. Um, it's been a it's been a tough tough go. I think I had a, I had a much better string of conferences when I was in um, when I was here for, when I was here for my masters. You know, I managed to get to a couple in Key West and you know New Orleans for ASBPA at that time and uh, a few other along the way. But you know, the last couple of years have been real tough for uh, for conferences. You know, ICCE you know went virtual. That was in Australia. I was I was I was so excited to go to that one. Uh, unfortunately, that one kind of got pulled out from the, the rug, got pulled out from under us. But um, yeah, ho looking forward to uh, looking forward to when things can finally return to some semblance of normalcy. Yes, yeah, same here. I've actually had several conference, remote conferences that just did not work out because of technical issues. So it, it's definitely been challenging. Uh, and you missed the whole. Uh, you miss so much of the, like, you know, there's the conferences, right? And like, there's the presentations and you, you know, you, you leave with a whole boatload of ideas and you can still get that through the, the remote, the remote, but you miss that whole, the, the between sessions, conversations and networking. And, you know, I, I was really fortunate enough to sort of, uh, in Baltimore, sit down next to some really interesting, interesting researchers and, and sort of politely interject into the conversation and, and you know, 
had a had a couple opportunities and became like co-authors on a couple of papers with people you know from those kind of experiences. So that whole aspect of it, I, I really uh, I really miss because um, there's a lot of there's a lot of those opportunities where um, you know the sort of uh, cross pollination ideas and the opportunities to sort of work with like you know to have a sort of informal conversation and start to set the seed for like a new paper or a new idea or a new grant whatever it may be. So. Um, definitely miss definitely miss the in-person conferences yes for sure one of the most important things i think that i get out of conferences too is that networking and the ability to to connect with others and the opportunities that come from it so matt um what do you see yourself doing in five years which is i guess kind of a loaded question but we are curious I, uh, I'm curious too, honestly. Um, but, um, uh, no, I mean, I think ideally the, the idea, uh, the idea and going back to grad school and finally getting the dissertation and, and, and going through with this is, is to try and make a go of it in academia or in research. Um, you know, I, I've, I've been fortunate enough to, to teach a few classes at Stevens and whatnot. Um, and I've really enjoyed that. Uh, so I'd love to be teaching somewhere, although there's a whole lot more PhDs that are graduating than academic positions that are opening up. Um, so, you know, I, I, I will humbly try that for a few years. And if it doesn't work, I will uh, I will pivot and hopefully do something, you know, that, where I can still get that technical component. So if that's you know, purely on like the research side, if it means going and trying to, to work at one of the research labs, you know, that would be uh, that would be a, a great outcome. Um, but, you know, if, uh, if all else fails, you know, I guess I could, I could go back into consulting, but, um, you know, it's not, it's not, it's not terrible. I, you know, you can get a lot out of consulting, um, enjoy it a lot, but, um, you know, my, my first, my first goal would be trying to try and make a go of it and, and, uh, and try and stick it out in the academic world. Yeah. And are you thinking that you're going to try and go for like a tenure track position? Oh, I have no idea. I think if whatever, wherever there's a fit, um, you know, whether it's, it's uh, soft money or if it's a tenure track, tenure track would be great. Um, you know, that's, uh, that's, those are few and far between to come by. So um, if I'm, if I'm gracious enough to have an opportunity to go for that, I would, I would, I would jump at that opportunity. Yeah. And I guess, would you say that you are at the point of looking for your next move and, and, you know, where you're going to go? Are you actually applying or are you just waiting till you're, you know, closer to graduation? I, I think I would be, uh, I'm, I'm a little hesitant at the moment. Uh, you know, I, I definitely keep an ear to the ground, so to speak, to try and see what positions are opening up. Um, you know, I think, uh, there's some Google alerts and, you know, there's the, obviously the coastal listserv that Udell has. Um, so, you know, definitely when there's a posting that comes up, I'm definitely reading it. I'm, I don't think I'm, I, I haven't been at the point yet where I would feel comfortable tipping my hat, my name into the hat at that point. Um, so I am, I am, I am waiting on the, I'm waiting on the side of a pool, but I'm getting ready to jump in, I guess is the way to put it. That makes total sense. So... One of our last questions that we wanted to ask um, is what advice would you give to students who are interested in pursuing the same field of research or a similar position as yourself? Oh, good question. So um, I would not, I don't know that I'd be feel qualified to give advice, but I will share some of the best advice that I did get when I thought about going to grad school. Um, and I remember having a conversation with, with Chris Baxter from the University of Rhode Island 
and you know, I remember calling him up and saying, you know, okay, uh, you know, Professor Baxter, you know, I'm thinking about uh, going back to grad school. And, uh, you know, I, I went out into the, the parking lot at my work and people have this conversation, you know, like as if it was some clandestine, you know, but you couldn't talk about it. And, uh, and I remember, I remember him just, you know, he was cool. Chris Baxter was such an unbelievable professor, uh, always made time for you and, and, you know, took the call, even though I graduated four years before. And, uh, you know, and, you know, basically told me, he's like, you know, when, you, when you're looking, when you're looking at uh, grad programs, less so for your master's, but if you ever consider going back for your PhD, but, you know, it's really important that you find an advisor that you can work with. Um, you know, they control your destiny, they control your fate, they can make your life, you know, your experience in grad school great or, or a miserable experience. And, you know, he gave me an example of how he switched schools when his, his PhD advisor, you know, uh, left one school and went to another school. And, you know, and it was, it was less about the program, it was less about the location, it was all about who are you working with and, and you know, why do you want to work with them. Um, so I thought that was one of the, the best pieces of advice that I ever got. Um, you know, and I would say if, if, if I had to dig on my own self and say, you know, what was your, um, what's your, what's your piece of advice generally for, for incoming students? It's like you, you are, you have to take, you are the, the champion. You have to be your biggest. You have to be your biggest advocate. Um, at the end of the day, if there's stuff that you want to do, if there's things that you want to see, you have to. You have to. You know, obviously, you're there, and you're. you're if you're gracious enough to have, uh, or fortunate enough to have funding, you know, you have to produce something along those funding lines. But um, you know, if there's something that you want to do, like you have to become your biggest advocate and figure out a way to to make that happen. Um, you know, I, I think. Uh, you know, you, you need, you need to be able to have that foresight, put a plan together and, and take action on it. Um, cause if you don't, you sort of go with the, go with the, the flow. You can, you can, you can let years sort of waste by that, you know, you can't get back. And time is, time is your biggest asset. Um, you know, being in grad school is great, but you know, every year that you're in grad school, you're giving up uh, a year of, of, you know, your career really. Gonna have to agree that Baxter. He's the man, um, such such a genuine, warm-hearted person, and my experience at URI was definitely enhanced because of his presence. I 100% agree. Yeah, he's uh, so enthusiastic. Actually, I, you know, I had such a positive experience uh, for an undergrad experience there. At, you know, um, such a such a wonderful experience. You know, the Bay Campus is beautiful. This is, this is turning into a plug for. Uh, for URI, but URI.edu <laughs> if you're interested, a baller ocean engineering program. Yeah, it's it's a it's a great program. There's so many so many great professors that came through there, and you know, they've uh, they they you know yeah it's, it's a it was it was a great experience as an undergrad. You know, exposure to research, exposure to so many different experiences. So um, you know, at one point, I remember we had a. Did you take um, you had the the ocean instrumentation class? I would assume, right? Right. So I remember we were on the back of, um, it wasn't the Endeavor, it was the other, the small one. Oh, Fred the Hughes Shanna Rose. Yes. And we were doing the, the toe behind um, sub-bottom uh, profiler and the side scan sonar. And there's a wreck in Narragansett Bay, a crane wreck that you would go out and you'd look at. And uh, Chris Baxter was on that one. And I remember sitting on the back of the fan tail of the boat and saying, you know, I would, I would love to do this. How do you get you get opportunities to do this. Like, you know, the Endeavor at that point was sitting at the, in the pier. And as we drove by, he goes, uh, he goes, hmm, because you, you would want to go on a boat for a week and go collect data. It's like, yeah, absolutely. You know, 
couple of days later, I get an email from him saying, hey, um, I, you know, the crews got moved. There was a problem with the Endeavor. They went on the Oceanus. So there was an engine issue. Moved the week. He was racing sailboats off the Bermuda that week, so he couldn't go. And he was looking for somebody to fill in. And, you know, very lo and behold, here I am, a, you know, a, a junior on this on this boat going offshore and doing piston cores off the uh, the coast of off the coast of New Jersey, which was just you know a tremendous opportunity. So if you uh, if you sometimes you have to just like put yourself out there and, and ask, and you know the opportunities present themselves in the, the strangest ways. One hundred percent, and it's like that experience right there. What you just described is is pretty much how every student should treat. If you're naturally curious, you just communicate with your professors. You let them know that you're interested and opportunities will just kind of fall into your lap. It's like now you're on their list for, oh, this person is interested in this. And if anything comes up, we can squeeze them in or or even look for opportunities to get you in that position. So uh, great advice. Good example. Yeah. Um, we, I believe we do have to start wrapping up now, but thank you so much, Matt, for being here today. I really appreciate um, all the insights that you've had to share. I know we didn't get too much into like the nitty gritty of your research, like specifics wise. So maybe when we circle back after a few after a few years uh, and and see how you may or may not dislike your research program or or the dislikes of a PhD, we can we can get into the more nitty gritty of it. I would love to um, kind of focus on those technical details that you love so much. Yeah, well, yeah, thank thank you so much for having me, and uh, it's been a lot of fun and great to great to meet another Ram and uh, Rody Rody Rody. You know, yeah, Rams Rams Rams, and uh, and you know, yeah, uh, find me in New Orleans and be happy to talk about it. Yeah, I'd love to check that out. Um, I might switch to virtual because organizational policy, but I will definitely highlight your um, presentation and everybody else tuning in. If you are going to ASPPA, whether in person or virtual, be sure to check out Matt's presentation at that conference. And just in general, thank you all for tuning in this month. Uh, let's wish Matt the best as he works to finish his PhD um, in this next year. Maybe, who knows, maybe two years. Uh, only, only luck and time and dedication will tell, I guess. Oh, I hope it's not two years. <laughs> fingers crossed, yeah. fingers crossed. But don't kill yourself too much, you know. It's you got to keep that work-life balance. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been a, it's been a, it's been a, it's been a hoot. So thank you very much. Thank you. The next student research spotlight could actually be you, listener. Um, if you or someone you know is doing some awesome research in anything coastal related and may or may not be interested in sharing their research with a larger audience, such as on this podcast, you can send an email to asbpa.snp at gmail.com with the subject SNP podcast. And you can also find that email in the show notes below as well. So feel free to reach out to us. And lastly, before we close out this episode, Heather and I would just like to take a moment to recognize Scott Hagen. He was a leader in the coastal profession who inspired and mentored so many people throughout his career. Unfortunately, he passed away unexpectedly in late July, and it really shook our coastal community. From those who worked with him closely, he was known to always have a smile on his face and have the greatest enthusiasm for his work and how that could positively impact coastal communities. 
We wish to extend our deepest condolences to his family and friends. And Scott's legacy will live on through the coastal students and new professionals of today and tomorrow. So thank you. Thank you.